It's not uncommon for kids to be afraid of the dark. They, they, they have this thing where if they can't see your face, they don't know that you're there. And when they can't see your face, sometimes that, that reassurance of mom or dad being there, being gone, it terrifies them. It's one reason why, why Peekaboo works with babies, but not older kids. See, as you get older, the principle, your, your body recognizes an object permanence. That even though they can't see your face, they still know that you're there. But, but, but have, you, have you ever noticed that when you, when you play Peekaboo with baby, with baby, what their response is? It's this response of unbridled joy. All of a sudden, you reveal yourself to them, and they are just overjoyed that you are there with them again. This unbridled joy comes across their face. But like with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so when you cover your face again to play peekaboo, it's as if their life, as if the joy has just been taken away from their life. We've seen this in our world. We see violence in our world. We see injustice. We see death and we see hurt. And with each of these occurrences, we see our joy decrease drip by drip. Our joy is like a flashlight. When you have a flashlight with fresh bulb and fresh batteries, the flashlight works great. At our house, though, flashlights have a way of being left on and soon the battery just isn't quite as strong as it used to be. And light barely reveals anything. See, sin, sin robs joy from our life. And as we chase after things that are not part of God's design, what sin does, it begins to diminish our joy. So when we use what God has made for good in a way that was not intended, that's sin. When we use uh, things that God intended for good and the way we not intended, it brings hurt, it brings destruction, it begins to take away our joy. See, sin disorders and disorients our world. It, it takes God's original design and flips it upside down. And as it's flipped upside down, our joy is taken with it. Today we're going to look at uh, a section from Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 7 through the beginning of Acts chapter 8. The, uh, the, the, the church is growing. It's growing in influence. It's growing in numbers. We see uh, lives being changed. But along the way, as people are, are being changed by the gospel, uh, difficulties arise. They begin to share the gospel with their friends and with their neighbors who become Christians, and, and they begin to share with their friends and neighbors who share it, and on and on it, it goes. And then some difficulties arise, and they, the church confronted those issues, and they addressed them, and they resolved them, and they moved on. And the way they addressed and resolved them helped them be more successful in fulfilling their mission. See, last week we saw how the church handled an injustice by choosing qualified men in the church to, to serve, to serve in a specific role to help a specific part of their community. The men were who were chosen were not just to be servants. They, they, they were instrumental in sharing the gospel and, and advancing the gospel. They weren't just waiters, but marketplace evangelists. 
One man we met last week was a man named Stephen. Stephen was a gifted speaker. He was a, a bright, a brilliant young man. And, and I would encourage you at some point in the next few days to, to stop and to read Acts chapter 7, to read his sermon. And, and in that sermon, he takes the Old Testament, he takes their national history and draws a line and points straight to Jesus as the Savior, as their Messiah. Well, this makes the Sanhedrin mad. Mad enough to commit murder in the name of religious law. Let's pick up what Luke writes, starting with Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 59. It says, while they were stoning him, uh, well, they're studying him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. But those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. See, Stephen's sermon, his, his, his forthcoming death, his murder, sparked a persecution against the church throughout Jerusalem. All of a sudden, lines were being drawn. At first, it just appeared that Christians were just a, a, a different sect, a different group of, of Jews. But as the the lines, as the, the definitions were being fleshed out, as, as, as the, the Christians were making more and more about Jesus, this made the Jewish leadership upset and uncomfortable. They began to act out. And so they take Stephen into custody. They have, he stands trial, and they stone him to death for blasphemy. And this sparked a persecution. It says that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And I began to wonder, where have we heard Judea and Samaria before? That's right, back in Acts chapter 1, where we first started this series. And Jesus tells the disciples before he ascends into heaven that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See what happened? The early church had grown comfortable in Jerusalem. They were staying put when they should have gone out. God used the unjust killing of Stephen to spark persecution and to get his church to move out, to move beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding state of Judea and into the state to the north, Samaria. See, the gospel was never meant just to stay in one place. They would take the gospel wherever they went. It was never meant to stay in one spot. It was always supposed to be a movement, one that moves people closer to Jesus, and one that begins to move its way and make its way around the world to where the people are. But unless there's motion, there is no movement. 
And so God begins to set his people in motion. And sometimes it takes some making people uncomfortable to get them to move. Kind of like if you're riding a horse, if you want the horse to go somewhere or go a little bit faster, easiest way to do this, kick your heels just a little bit into its side and the horse will often respond. See, the principle of physics are right. Objects at rest tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by a larger object. And the early church was growing, but it wasn't moving. So God had to act on them, not once, not twice, but in a continual manner. See, in the first five verses that we read, Luke mentions a man named Saul twice. And if you go back just one more verse, Luke mentions him three times in six verses, and all of them are negative. Saul was present, if not active, in the stoning of Stephen. He approved of his killing, and then he was active in the persecution of the early church. And those of you who know how the story goes, if you keep reading along in Acts chapter 9, Saul is on his way to continue persecuting the church when he has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Eventually Saul changes his name. And he begins to go by the name that we more clearly recognize him by, Paul. And Paul becomes instrumental in this movement of taking the gospel to the ends of the world. But right now, he's just a catalyst to help the church move out of Jerusalem and begin to take their next step in their journey. See, those who were persecuted there in Jerusalem, they scattered about, and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. They were missionaries. They took the message with them wherever they went. Some believe that most of those who who left Jerusalem were part of the Hellenistic group of, of Christians. And so maybe they had just decided to go back home, just go back to the place where they used to live. And so as they went, they began to share with others about their faith. They, they took their faith with them, and as they went, they shared it with others. See, often, when we come up against an obstacle, we think we must be doing something wrong. Oh, this is, this is hard, this is difficult, so we stop, we pull back. It must mean we're not doing something right. But when they saw something difficult, when they came up against uh, persecution, they didn't abandon their faith. They pivoted. And they went in a different direction. See, during this pandemic, we could have stopped everything. We could have just said, man, this is going to be too hard. This is going to be too difficult. It's going to be too new. Will will people follow? Will people accept what we're doing? Will will, will, will they uh, uh, join in? Will they engage with us in this new way? And from the response of many of you, you feel connected and cared for because of the steps we've taken, because of the, 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 the new things that we've added into our current setup. You feel connected. You feel cared for. What about sharing our faith? See, for the last couple of months, we've been in survival mode. And you would think, how am I going to take care of my basic needs? How am I going to keep myself safe? How am I going to take care of myself if I get sick? I don't know about you, but the number one rule in our house over the last few months has been no ER visits, right? I mean, quarantine rule, no ER visits. Don't do anything that you might possibly get hurt badly enough that will require us to take you to the hospital. 
So maybe you've been in survival mode. And just taking our mind off the conversations about faith that we need or want or should have with our neighbors. But as we begin to move out of this quarantine, as we begin to reopen, as we begin to, to re-engage in life, we're going to have an opportunity to, to talk with people, to share with them about their experience and our experience. And maybe as, as we begin to share, we can tell others about the hope that we have in God, about the peace that we had, the peace that we experienced, even in these trying times, the peace that helped get us through, and how that peace only comes from a relationship with Jesus. See, it's in the persecution, it's in the trial, it's in those hard times that we truly find out who our God is. See, everything God made is good, but everything God made can be used for sin. When we use God's creation and participate with it in a way that is outside of God's design, we call that sin. Sin destroys what God has made, and it becomes a cause for grief and pain in our life and in the lives of those around us. See, idolatry? Idolatry is the ultimate definition of sin. As we reject God's original design, God's original plan. Maybe we've elevated a goal. Maybe we've elevated some sort of need that we have and placed it in the position as God in our life. Maybe we've even decided to make ourselves kings of our own little kingdoms. When the trial comes, the persecution comes, the hard time comes, and there we feel no peace. We feel no joy because the place where we've put our hope is shaken. See, if you put your hope in your job or in money, but then all of a sudden you're furloughed or laid off or your business closes, your hope is shaking. If you put your hope in your body and your health and all of a sudden you get sick, you have a, a, a devastating disease, you uh, lose the function of some part of your body. If your hope is in your body or your health, your hope is shaken. Hope in anything but Jesus is uncertain. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you listen to my words and do what they say, you'll be like a person who builds their house on the rock. He said, if you do not listen to my words and you do not do what they say, then you're like a person who builds their house on the sand. The storm comes to, to both the houses, but only one of them stands firm. So my question is, are we listening to his words? Are we doing what they say? See, by coming to a Savior who is true beauty, who reorders our life after the destruction of sin, God becomes both king and liberator, not just lawgiver and death healer. He becomes a true beauty that captures our hearts and is very precious to us. If you want a relationship with this kind of Savior, you can text JOY to 240-347-0897 or let us know in the connection card that you can find at cchmd.com slash connect. See, here's what happened with those who were persecuted, those who were in a relationship with Jesus. As they went along, some, 
Some were thrown in jail. Some were put in prison. Paul, Saul came and he took them from their homes and he put them in prison. Others were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And wherever they went, they preached the word. Wherever they went. Wherever they went. And Luke kind of, he zeroes in on, on, on one fellow. A guy named Philip. We met Philip last week. He was one of the seven. It said that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and there he proclaimed the Messiah. Your version might say the Christ. Both of them refer to Jesus as God's anointed one. God's chosen one. And Philip goes down to Samaria and he begins to tell people about Jesus. And as he tells the people about Jesus, God empowers him to do some miraculous signs that accompany the message of the gospel. And they support the gospel. And as he's there, he brings healing through the word and action. And as a result, there is great joy in that city. Great joy in that city. Why? Because joy is the product of grace. Joy is the product of grace. When the gospel takes hold of our life, when someone makes Jesus their Savior, and they respond to Him in faith, and they submit to Him in baptism, and they begin to walk with Him each day, and they grow in their faith, joy is a natural result of those steps. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And many others to follow. So when we see less joy in our life, it means we're walking less with Jesus. Because sin steals our joy, but grace gives joy. That's why joy is like a flashlight. You really could use a flashlight when it gets dark out. And over the last couple of weeks and months, our world's felt really dark. What the world needs right now is some light. What the world needs now is some joy. So we don't need another stimulus package, another speech, another protest. What we need is, is joy. The kind of joy that's only found in Jesus. It's the only way for the world to know is if we get out of our chair and go over there. If we get out of our seats and, and go to the streets and shine our light as we go. Saul becomes Paul and Paul goes around the world and he, he, he plants churches in all these towns and cities all across the known Roman world. And one of his stops, one of his sets of friends is in a place called Philippi. And he, he, Paul finds himself in prison one day and he writes a letter to his friends there in Philippi, and he says these words. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Was their world perfect? No, it was a, a corrupt generation. As we look around, we see corruption around us as well. But if we hold to the word of life, if we walk in step with Jesus, if his joy begins to exude from us, we will shine like stars 
in the sky. You don't see stars so much in the daytime. The sun, which is our closest star, is just way too bright to see the others. But when the sun goes away, the other stars reveal themselves in the darkness. Light shines brightest in the dark. Jesus said it like this, You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. that They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. In the darkness of our world, our joy, our light should shine brightest. But if we're not walking in step with Jesus, that light, that joy, will only be diminished. See, from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 8, what well, can be no more than about 18 months. Most likely it's uh, even less than that. Close to just about a year. Not much time has passed since Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension in this great persecution. And this, the, the, the disciples are still trying to negotiate this new world that they find themselves in. But each step along the way, they continue to share the gospel. They continue to tell others about what they have seen and heard. And as people respond in faith, well, they find joy. They find joy to help bring them out of the darkness. They, help, they, they find joy that, that brings light to their world. They find joy that gives them hope, even in hard times. So this week, this week, as you go, shine your light. You bring your light to the world around you, that others might see Jesus alive in you. And as you have the opportunity, will you tell others about the joy in you? You share with them the gospel that Jesus has brought to you so they may have the same joy that we do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have given your life for us. Father, we can find joy in your presence. Father, the joy that you give us is, is everlasting. It's full. It's complete. It's real. It's true. Father, we pray that, the, that, that we will take this joy and we will share it with others. That, Father, it will be like a flashlight shining into the darkness. And we will be like a light shining into the darkness, shining the way to hope and to peace and namely to you. Father, we thank you that you've loved us, and that you've saved us. And I pray that you would help us to restore our world so that they may come to know you as we do. I thank you for the hope that we found in Jesus. We share it with others. It's in his name I pray. Amen.